Hello, welcome back to the American History Podcast. I know it's been a minute since we've actually had an episode, a new one, and gonna start shifting in a little bit of a different direction. I mean, I'm gonna have some episodes, of course, on various history topics and periods throughout, you know, the 20th century coming up, uh, but our, I say our, but in Texas, we have our current legislative session going on and you know we really don't talk about local issues and government going on a whole lot and so i wanted to kind of highlight in a few episodes what it the texas government system is like so we're going to start off with like the texas political culture in this first episode here of the series. So, uh, political scientists, they have recognized for a long time now the importance of political culture, which is, you know, the broadly shared values, beliefs, and attitudes about how the government should function and how politics should operate. American political culture is traditionally viewed as emphasizing the values of liberty, equality, and democracy. And these terms have meant a variety of things to Americans in different times and places. States often exhibit a distinctive political culture that is the product of their entire history. And presumably, the political culture of a state has an effect on how people participate in politics and how individuals and institutions interact. And very often, Texas is categorized as having a traditionalistic, individualistic political culture in which deference is shown to political elites by the masses and hard work and self-interest are valued as core virtues in the economic life of the state. So traditionalistic individualistic is that the belief of government, you know, it should be dominated by those political elites and people that have that experience and knowledge and is very much guided by tradition. It's very heavily influenced uh, by the culture of the South combined with the belief that the government should limit its role in providing order in society so citizens can pursue their own economic self-interest. And it's that tends to be influenced by the culture of the mid-Atlantic states. So uh, taxes do tend to be kept low. Social services are very minimized. Political elites like business leaders especially have a major voice in how the state is run. And in spite of the difficulty in measuring this concept of traditionalistic, individualistic political culture in any empirical way, you know, you can't really measure it, but it is widely regarded as useful in explaining fundamental beliefs about the state and the role of state government. So when considering the political culture of Texas, one must recognize that it can change over time. It's also very difficult to classify the political culture of a state as large and as diverse as Texas in any one category. So the liberal cultural norms of urban areas such as Houston, Dallas, and Austin often stand in sharp contrast to those found in the conservative suburban areas, which are places outside a city, and exurban, which are very prosperous places beyond the suburbs areas of the cities. So these two differ from the political cultures found in South Texas along the border or in the rural panhandle of West Texas. So in fact, many, Texas has many different political cultures or subcultures within the borders. 
So to understand the complexity of political culture in Texas today, it's useful to consider very three long lasting patterns in Texas politics and the changes that they are undergoing, which are the one party state, the idea of provincialism and business dominance. So for over a hundred years, Texas was dominated by the Democratic Party. So winning the Democratic primary was tantamount to winning the general election. The pattern was broken in 1978, finally, when the Republican William Clements, he uh, first won the governorship to the surprise of many, and again in 1986 when he uh, again won a second term. So during the 1990s, substantial competition also emerged between the parties for control of the state legislature. So following redistricting in 2002, the Republicans secured a seven vote majority in the state Senate and a 24 vote majority in the state house. So just kind of going through the political history a little bit of Texas and the shifts that it's undergone. But the Republicans, they continue, continue to expand these majorities for the next 15 years. And between 2002 and 2016, all major statewide elected offices were controlled by Republicans. There was one court of criminal appeals justice that switched the Democratic Party in December 2013 after being elected as a Republican, but was defeated in the November 2016 general elections. Very few observers doubt that Republicans and conservative values will continue to dominate state politics in the near future, but changes are kind of in the wind. A powerful Republican Party controls most suburban, exurban, and rural areas and has grown increasingly conservative and divided. Moderate pro-business Republicans have begun to clash with a strident group of cultural conservatives championing such issues as traditional marriage, border security, and school choice. The Democratic Party that controls Texas cities has become a party of liberal whites and minorities seeking to promote a progressive agenda emphasizing pro-choice, LGBT rights, and public education. Democrats see in the, in the expanding young Latina population a route back into political prominence. Now, if they could tap into those voters, they may be able to uh, get their stronghold back. And it may be difficult to predict the full impact of these changes on the traditionalistic, individualistic political culture in Texas, but they're definitely going to impact it. So a second pattern that wants to find Texas political culture is provincialism, which is a very narrow view of the world often associated with rural values and belief in limited government. The result often was an intolerance of diversity and a concept of the public interest that dismissed social services and expenditures for education. Some of the more popular politicians in Texas in the past have espoused such attitudes, along with Cornpone, which is a rural rejection of the cosmopolitanism found in large urban areas. Racism and intolerance of other cultures played important roles in defining provincialism and the traditional uh, Texas political culture, increasing urbanization, the growing influence of minorities, women, and LGBT people in politics, and the state's rising importance in the global economy has undercut some of Texas' traditional provincialism. But recent episodes of intolerance towards transgendered individuals, minority religious groups, and new immigrants from Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America show a resurgence in some of the values associated with provincialism in Texas, at least in important parts of the population. So a third continuing pattern that has helped define Texas political culture is its longtime dominance by business. 
Labor unions are rare in Texas, except in the oil refinery areas around Beaumont, Port Arthur. There's some teachers unions as well. Um, working in state agencies, there are a few that have uh, unions as well. Other groups that might offer an alternative to a business perspective, such as consumer interest groups, uh, tend to be poorly organized and poorly funded. Business groups are the major players in Texas politics, you know, in terms of campaign contributions, organized interest groups, and lobbyists. The concerns and values of business groups continue to shape political culture in Texas today. But this business influence is being challenged by a powerful social conservative wing in the Republican Party that is less concerned with business interests than bathroom regulation, border control, and traditional marriage. And so we're going to start looking at the economic, social, and demographic changes that have transformed Texas political culture during the 20th century and have continued to shape it in now the second decade of the 21st century. So for much of Texas history and political life, it's been shaped by the relationship for between forged between its people and the land. Now, when Texas became a republic in 1836, it claimed 216 million acres, which is about 350,000 square miles, uh, which is all unappropriate land as its own. So at its founding, Texas was land rich, but money poor, having only $55.68 in its treasury. Texas was the only state other than the original 13 colonies to keep control of its public lands when it entered the Union in 1845. Privatizing these public lands was probably the most important ongoing public policy pursued by the state in the 19th century. Although Texas turned a large portion of its public lands over to private ownership, it retained ownership of the minerals under some of this land, including land containing oil and natural gas. Privatization of public property established the property rules and regulations under which economic development would take place in the state. So it also gave the state an ownership of mineral rights that would provide funding for elementary and secondary education, as well as higher education for the next 160 years. Privatization was not the only political issue surrounding land in Texas in the 19th century. The exact boundaries of Texas were contentious throughout the 1840s and 1850s. Following the Mexican-American War, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 established the Rio Grande as the southern, southern border of the state. After Texas threatened to use military force to reassert its land claims, land claims in the West, the Compromise of 1850 established Texas' current western borders. In exchange for $10 million in federal bonds, Texas gave up claims to 67 million acres of land in what are now New Mexico, Wyoming, Colorado, Kansas, and Oklahoma. The Compromise of 1850 enabled Texas to pay off the public debts incurred during the Republic and to retain 98 million acres in public lands. Today, Texas is the second largest state next to Alaska and its size is perhaps the most distinctive characteristic of its geography. To understand the dynamics of political life and governance in Texas demands an appreciation of the vast spaces and topography that define the state. The longest straight line distance across the state from north to south is 801 miles. The longest east-west distance is 773 miles. To put this into perspective, the north-south distance between New York City and Charleston, South Carolina is 763 miles, cutting across seven different states. The east-west distance between New York City and Chicago is 821 miles, cutting across six different states. 
Distances alone, though, do not tell the whole story of the state's diverse topography. There are four distinct physical regions in Texas whose distinctive features have shaped its politics in a number of important ways. So the first one we're going to talk about is the Gulf Coastal Plains. So the Gulf Coastal Plains extend from the Louisiana border and the Gulf of Mexico along the Rio Grande up to Del Rio and northward to the line of the Balcones Fall and Escarpment. As one moves westward, the climate becomes increasingly dry. Forests become less frequent as post oak trees dominate the landscape until they too are replaced by the prairies and brushlands of central Texas. The eastern portion of the Gulf Coastal Plains, so-called East Texas, is hilly and covered by forests of pine and hardwoods. Almost all of Texas timber production takes place here, which is also the home of some of the state's most famous oil fields. To the west is the Blackland Belt. Rolling prairie soil made the Blackland Belt a prime farming area, especially for cotton, during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Today, it is the most densely populated area of the state and has a diverse manufacturing base. The coastal prairies around Houston and Beaumont were the center for the state's post-World War II industrial boom, particularly in the petrochemical industry. Winter vegetable and fruit production plays a major role in the lower Rio Grande Valley, while livestock is important in the Rio Grande Plain, an area that receives less than 24 inches of rainfall on average every year and loses much of that to evaporation during its very hot summers. Texas political life grew out of the Gulf Coastal Plains. The land grants offered to Americans willing to come to Texas in the first half of the 19th century were located in this region, which was the birthplace of plantation slavery and, after the Civil War and Reconstruction, of Jim Crow segregation in the state. East Texas also saw the first oil booms in Texas in the early decades of the 20th century. The Dallas-Fort Worth area in the northwestern part of this region was once a bastion of a small Republican Party. A union movement grew out of the industrialized areas along the coast, providing support to a liberal wing of the Democratic Party. For the most part, though, the Gulf Coastal Plains were dominated by rural conservative values, whether in the Democratic Party from the end of Reconstruction in 1876 to the early 1990s, or the Republican Party from the 1990s to today. Urbanization and suburbanization in Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth have added new dimensions to the political life of this region. In the 21st century, urban areas have become increasingly democratic while suburban areas have become more Republican. The interior lowlands are the next area we're going to talk about, which are an extension of the lowlands that run south from Canada through the Midwest. They are bordered by the Balcones Escarpment, which is the surface expression of the Balcones Fault on the east and south and the Caprock Escarpment on the west. So extending west from Fort Worth, the interior lowlands have a predominantly agricultural economy and rural population. In the western portion, which rises from 750 to 2,000 feet in elevation, the West Texas Rolling Plains contain much level, cultivable land, along with a large cattle raising industry. Many of the state's largest ranches are located here. Like other rural areas of Texas today, this region is dominated by conservative politics and the Republican Party. Next area we're going to talk about is the Great Plains. So the Great Plains define the terrain in much of western Texas, rising from 2,700 feet in the east to more than 4,000 feet along the New Mexico border. The major city on the northern plains is Amarillo. Ranching and petroleum production dominate the economy. Farther to the south, the economy centers on agriculture and cotton production, with Lubbock as the major city. Large-scale irrigation from underwater reservoirs, particularly the Ogallala Aquifer, has played a major role in the economic development of this region. 
The aquifer is being pumped out faster than it is being replenished, however, raising questions about the viability of basing future growth on current irrigation practices. So as in East Texas and the interior lowlands, conservative political values have a home in the Great Plains. Although politicians from this area have played a major role in Texas government over the last 100 years, their power has been ebbing in the face of expanding population of urban areas elsewhere. The fourth geographic region in Texas is the Basin and Range Province. Here one finds Texas mountains in the Guadalupe Range along the border with New Mexico, including Guadalupe Peak at 8,749 feet and El Capitan, 8,085 feet. To the southeast is Big Bend Country, so named because the Rio Grande surrounds it on three sides as the river makes its southward swing. Rainfall and population are sparse in this region. The area along the Mexican border, running from the Basin and Range Province through the southern Great Plains and Gulf Coastal Plains to the lower Rio Grande Valley and the Gulf of Mexico, has always had a distinctive political culture, dominated by the fact that Texas and Mexico have been connected economically and demographically. The population in this region is overwhelmingly Latino. In the 21st century, the border region, including the cities of El Paso, McAllen, and Brownsville, has remained a Democratic Party bastion. The famous 20th century economist Joseph Schumpeter characterized the capitalist economic system as being a process of creative destruction. By this he meant that capitalism underwent periodic waves of disruptive transformation fueled by technological innovations in production and distribution. These waves were created by entrepreneurs who had visions of new ways to produce and distribute goods and services and then made those visions a reality. But the capitalist process of creative destruction not only creates a new economic and social world, it destroys old ones. During the late 19th century, the world of railroads, steam power, and steel transformed American economic and social life by nationalizing the market, creating ways to buy and sell the same goods and services nationwide, and making new opportunities available to businesses and individuals. Farmers no longer grew their crops simply for local or regional markets in Texas, but for national markets in such a widely dispersed cities as New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Kansas City, and San Francisco. Their economic livelihoods were no longer controlled just by the rhythms of the weather in Texas, but by vagaries of supply and demand in far-off cities and states. The technological innovations tied to gasoline, combustion engines, electricity, and radio radically restructured the American economy again in the 1920s, leaving in their wake a society that would never be the same. The last great wave of creative destruction, one that Schumpeter himself never saw, began in the 1980s and carried through into the early decades of the 21st century as digital technology tied to the information age and the internet restructured yet again how business was conducted and people interacted. Over the last 150 years, three great waves of technological change have helped define and redefine the state's economy. The first centered on the production of cotton and cattle and their distribution by an extensive railroad system. The second grew out of the oil industry. The third and most recent is tied to the development of the high-tech digital economy. So cotton is one of the oldest crops grown in Texas. Missions in San Antonio in the 18th century are reported to have produced several thousand pounds of cotton annually, which were spun and woven by local artisans. Large-scale cultivation began in 1821 with the arrival of white Americans. Political independence, statehood, and the ongoing removal of the Native American threat in the years before the Civil War promoted the development of the cotton industry. By the mid-19th century, production had soared, placing Texas eighth among the cotton-producing states in the Union. By 1880, Texas led all states in the production of cotton in most years. 
A number of technological breakthroughs further stimulated the cotton industry in Texas. First, in the 1870s, barbed wire was introduced, enabling farmers to cordon off their lands and protect their crop from grazing cattle. Second, the building of railroads brought Texas farmers into a national market. Finally, a newly designed plow made it easier to dig up the prairie soil and significantly increased farm pr productivity. Gotta thank John Deere for that one. Throughout the 1870s, immigrants from the Deep South and Europe flooded the prairies of Texas to farm cotton. Most of these newly arrived Texans became tenant farmers or sharecroppers. Tenants lived on farms owned by others, providing their own animals, tools, and seed. They generally received two-thirds of the final value of the cotton grown on the farm, while their landlord received the other third. Sharecroppers, a subset of tenant farmers, furnished only their labor and received only half the value of the final product. By the turn of the century, almost half of the state's farmers were tenants. Two important consequences resulted from the tenant and sharecropping system. First, it condemned many rural Texans to lives of social, social and economic dependency. Under the notorious crop lien system developed by landlords and merchants to extend credit to farmers who did not own their land, farmers profited from their work only after their debts had been paid or new loans had been made to pay off old debts. The result often was to trap farmers in a debt cycle from which they could not escape. Second, the tenant and sharecropping system helped fuel radical political discontent in rural areas, sparking both the Grange and populist movements. These movements played a major role in defining the style of Texas politics throughout much of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Cotton production cycled up and down during this period as farmers experienced a series of crises and opportunities, ranging from destructive bull weevils to an increased demand brought on by World War I to a collapse in prices following the war. Overall, however, the cotton culture began to decline that continued after World War II. The 1930 census reported that 61% of all farmers in Texas were tenant farmers and that one-third of these were sharecroppers. These numbers fell throughout the Great Depression and beyond. By 1987, only 12% of all farmers were tenants. The history of ranching in the cattle industry parallels that of cotton in many ways. Their origins extend back to the late 17th century when the Spanish colonial authorities brought livestock to the region to feed their missionaries, soldiers, and civilians. During the periods of Mexican rule and independence, ranching offered immigrants an attractive alternative to farming. In the 1830s, traffic in cattle was limited to local areas, but over the next two decades, cattle drives and railroads began opening up new markets in the east. Following the Civil War, the cattle industry took off, expanding throughout the state. As with cotton, the invention of barbed wire helped, closing off ranch lands used for grazing. By the end of the century, open range had given way to fenced pasturing. As a result, conflicts over land often broke out between large and small ranchers, as well as between ranchers and farmers. As cattle raising became a more specialized and efficient business, conflicts also rose between ranchers and their employees. Throughout the 20th century, ranching remained a cyclical industry, struggling when national and international prices collapsed and thriving during upturns in the economy. Ranching and cotton production remained important industries in the state, although increasingly dominated by big agribusiness companies. Today, Texas normally leads the nation in both livestock and cotton production. About 40% of the cotton production in the United States comes from Texas. In 2014, the cotton crop was over 6.2 million bales valued at over $2.1 billion, most of which was exported to China, Turkey, and Mexico. 
Production has fluctuated over the last decade because of the severe drought that plagued parts of the state. Today, however, neither cotton production nor ranching drives the Texas economy. The number of people making a living from agriculture has dropped significantly over the last 50 years as agribusiness has pushed out the family farm and ranch. In 1940, 23% of the population lived on farms and ranches. Another 17% were suppliers to farms and ranches or helped assemble, process, or distribute agricultural products. Currently, less than 2% of the population lives on farms and ranches with an additional 15 Sorry about that, but uh, I'm not sure where it cut off, but just talking about cattle, ranching and cotton production, they do remain important industries in the state, although they are increasingly dominated by big agribusiness companies, and Texas does normally lead the country in both livestock and cotton production. Um, we've seen a decline in uh, those in the agriculture industry. So less than 2% of the population lives on farms and ranches with additional 15% provi providing support processing or distribution services to agriculture. And in the early 20th century, we saw a new set of technological breakthroughs that challenged the 19th century dominance of cotton and cattle. And these breakthroughs focused not on what grew on the land, but what was underneath it. So, Spanish explorers, they first sighted oil oozing out of the ground in the mid-17th century. And because there was then no market or demand for it, nothing was done to develop the natural resource. Over a century later, encouraged by a growing demand for petroleum products following the Civil War, a scattering of entrepreneurs dug wells, but they proved not commercially viable. So, the first economically significant oil discovery in Texas was in 1894 in Navarro County and near Corsicana. By 1898, the state's first oil refinery was operating at the site. What catapulted Texas into the era of oil and gas was the discovery at Spindletop on January 10th, 1901. Located three miles south of Boma along the Gulf Coast, the Spindletop discovery produced the state's first oil boom and encouraged large numbers of speculators and entrepreneurs to try their luck in the new business. Within three years, three major oil fields have been discovered within 150 miles of Spindletop. As a result, oil fever spread throughout Texas in the early 20th century with major oil fields developed all across the state. The oil and gas industry transformed the social and economic fabric of Texas. A cheap new source of energy helped factories and farms operate more efficiently, reducing the need for farm workers and stimulated manufacturing. This encouraged people to escape rural unemployment by moving to cities with growing numbers of industrial jobs. In addition, cheap oil encouraged automobile production and the building of industrial, building of roads, sorry. The interstate highway system built during the 1950s and 60s challenged fundamentally the transportation patterns that had shaped the movements of people and goods in Texas. The triangle formed by I-35 from San Antonio to Dallas-Fort Worth I-45 from DFW to Houston and I-10 from Houston to San Antonio became the heart of the Texas economy and the location of an increasing percentage of the state's population. The oil and gas industry also sparked a rapid industrialization of the Gulf Coast region. Among the companies developing the region's oil fields were Gulf Oil, Sun Oil, Magnolia Petroleum, The Texas Company, and Humble Oil. The refineries, pipelines, and export facilities laid the foundations for the large-scale industrialization in the Houston-Beaumont-Port Arthur region. 
By 1929 in Harris County, which is where Houston is, for example, 27% of all manufacturing employees worked in refineries. By 1940, the capacity of the, all the refineries had increased fourfold from 1929. The petrochemical industry continued to flourish throughout the 1960s when demand for its products grew at the rate of 10% a year. Another important effect of the oil and gas boom was a new rhythm to economic life in the state. When the economy was tied to cotton and cattle, prices of products could rise and fall, bringing prosperity or gloom to local economies. But there were natural seasonal and annual cycles in these agricultural activities, and a bond existed between the land and the people and the communities that formed around them. Oil and gas, on the other hand, introduced a boom and bust mentality that carried over in the communities that sprang up around oil and gas discoveries. Rural areas were often unprepared for the population explosion that followed such discoveries. Housing was often inadequate or non-existent. Schools quickly became overcrowded and general living conditions were poor as people sought to make it big. Ironically, a major discovery that brought large amounts of new oil and gas to market could lead to a sudden collapse in prices. Local prosperity could then quickly turn into depression. And when particular fields were tapped out, boom towns could quickly become ghost towns. The oil and gas industry also transformed Texas government and the role that it played in the state's economy. Following the Civil War, a series of political attempts to regulate the railroads had largely failed. In 1990, however, after considerable controversy fueled by the populist hostility to railroad companies, a constitutional amendment was passed to create a regulatory agency, the Texas Railroad Commission. In 1917, sorry, the commission's powers were extended to regulation of energy to ensure that petroleum pipelines were common carriers that they transported all producers oil and gas on equal terms and to promote well spacing rules which controlled production by limiting how closely packed together oil wells could be in a particular field in the 1930s in an attempt to limit price fluctuations brought on by the glut of oil on world markets and to avoid wasteful production the commission won the authority to prorate oil that is to determine how much every well in texas was allowed to produce through the late 1960s the Texas Railroad Commission was one of the most important, as well as one of the few democratically elected regulatory bodies in the nation. Expanding the power of state government and the economy through the Railroad Commission was only one political effect of the oil and gas industry in Texas. The industry also had an important fiscal effect. Beginning in 1905, the state collected oil production taxes which rose from $101,403 in 1906 to over $1 million in 1919, and almost $6 million in 1929. For the 2018-19 biennium, it was estimated that such taxes, known as severance taxes, would contribute $4.9 billion to the state budget, up to 29.7% from $3.81 billion in 2016-17. Natural gas production taxes in 2018-19 added another $1.8 billion to the state budget, up 16.4% from $1.6 billion in 2016-17. These revenue numbers have fluctuated wildly in recent years as the price of oil and gasoline has collapsed and then recovered. As we will see later when we talk about uh, public finance in Texas, oil and natural gas production plays an important role in the state's finances through the severance tax. So much like the state government coffers, those of higher education in Texas have benefited from the oil and gas industry. What many thought was worthless land at the time had been set aside by the state constitution of 1876 and the state legislature in 1883 as the permanent university fund to support higher education. As luck would have it, 
Oil was discovered in the West Texas Permian Basin in 1923 on university land. Soon, 17 wells were producing oil there, sparking a building boom at the University of Texas. In 1931, the income of the Permanent University Fund was split between the University of Texas at Austin and Texas A&M University, with the former receiving two-thirds and the latter one-third. In 1984, the income was opened up to all University of Texas and Texas A&M schools. Along with the royalties from other natural resources on university land, oil and gas royalties created one of the largest university endowments in the world. In June 2017, the Permanent University Fund held title to 2.1 million acres in 24 counties, primarily in West Texas, and the market value of the fund was calculated to be $19.5 billion. The movement of the Texas economy out of the era dominated by oil and gas was not easy. From 1971 to 1981, the annual rate of economic growth averaged 4.4%. World oil prices rose to almost $35 per barrel in 1981, by which time oil-related businesses accounted for 26% of the state's total economic production. Fueled by a booming oil-based economy and a rapidly increasing population, real estate prices shot up in urban areas such as Houston and Dallas. Projections were made that as oil prices rose, perhaps to $70 or even $80 per barrel, future prosperity was inevitable. Indeed, there was some talk that Texas' oil-driven economy had become recession-proof. Such talk proved premature, to say the least. World oil prices began to collapse in 1982, bottoming out early in 1986 at $10 per barrel. Other sectors of the economy began to suffer as the price of oil fell. The state went through two major recessions, one in 1982 and another in 1986 to 87. Real estate deals fell through and construction projects slowed and then shut down. Speculators defaulted on their loans and banks began to fail. Throughout the 1980s, 370 banks went under in Texas. Texas emerged from the economic malaise of the 1980s with a transformed economy. Though remaining an important fact sector, the oil and gas business was no longer the primary driving force. One can trace the rise and decline and rise again of the oil and gas industry in Texas through production figures. So the state's oil production peaked around 1972. Decades of decline followed. Beginning in 08-2008, new technologies such as horizontal drilling and fracking led to a new boom era of oil and gas production in Texas. Through 2017, a large share of the new production came from the Permian Basin region in West Texas, which may be the second largest oil field in the world. The result of this most recent boom is that oil and gas has emerged again as a mainstay of the Texas economy, although it is an economy that is far more diversified than in any earlier era. With the boom came greater resources for the state's budget. But the boom also brought new demands for vast water supplies, an essential component of the new drilling and fracking technologies, and new concerns about the effects of this technology on the environment. By 2015, there were other clouds on the horizon of the oil industry. After hovering around $100 per barrel through mid-2014, the price of oil began a steady decline, fluctuating between $30 and $50 a barrel through late 2017. Not surprisingly, as the price fell, production of oil in Texas went into decline. By the last decade of the 20th century, new industries and technologies not based in extracting resources from the lands were assuming significant roles in the state's economy. Among the most important of these was the burgeoning high-tech industry. In contrast to the 1980s, the 1990s were a period of rapid growth in Texas. 
And unlike in earlier periods of speculative boom, such as the 1970s, the growth was grounded in a rapidly diversifying economic base. At the heart of the boom was a fast-growing manufacturing sector tied to high-tech. In the 1990s, Texas went from 7th in the nation in total manufacturing employment to 2nd. In 2017, 13% of the total output in the state came from manufacturing, and 7% of the workforce was employed in manufacturing. Today, two Texas metropolitan areas stand out as national centers of the rapidly evolving high-tech industry. The Austin-San Marcos area is the home of the computer giant Dell and has become a production center for computer chips, personal computers, and related computer hardware with such companies as Google, Facebook, Flextronics, Apple, Oracle, and IBM. IBM. Seven of the area's largest employers are part of the computer or semiconductor industry. The Dallas metropolitan area, particularly north of the city, is the home of a number of important electronic and electronic equipment companies, including Texas Instruments and Irving. Houston has also become known worldwide for its medical center and expanding research facilities in the medical field. In 2016, manufacturers exported $210 billion in manufactured goods. A 2014 study released by the Tech America Foundation found that Texas was the leading state exporter of technology goods with $45 billion in exports in 2012. And approximately 331,000 jobs in Texas were supported by these exports. So Texas' place in national and international markets has been shaped by its central location within the United States, its border with Mexico, and its sophisticated transportation infrastructure. One defining feature of the Texas economy from the 1990s on was the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. Signed on December 17, 1992 by Prime Minister Brian Mulroney of Canada, President Carlos Salinas de Gortari of Mexico, and President George H.W. Bush of the United States, NAFTA sought to create a free trade zone, an area free of customs duties in North America that was the largest of its kind in the world. Considerable controversy surrounded its passage, with many groups arguing that free trade would hurt U.S. workers and companies because of the cheaper labor available in Mexico. Today, NAFTA links approximately 494 million consumers in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. According to a recent Standard & Poor's study, Mexico has benefited the most from the agreement, but Texas has benefited enormously as well. NAFTA has accelerated the diversification of the Texas economy. Along the border, NAFTA has clearly stimulated trade and transport and created jobs. The trade agreement has had some negative impact on Texas as well. A 2011 study by the Economic Policy Institute estimated that almost 683,000 jobs have been lost in the United States because of NAFTA. And over 55,000 of these displaced jobs came from Texas. U.S. workers generally lost their jobs because of competition from lower-wage businesses in Mexico or relocation of plants to Mexico. Under federal law, such workers are entitled to additional unemployment compensation. Although there were some losers in the movement toward free trade with Mexico and Canada, there were also big winners. So the Trump administration's concern over undocumented workers in the United States and terrorism have added a new dimension to the debate over NAFTA and global trade in Texas. Most Texas political and business leaders continue to believe that expanding trade with Mexico and other countries is a good thing. A free flow of people across the border, however, is another issue. An increasing number of people, particularly conservative Republicans, now question the benefits to Texas of a porous border.
During the 2016 election campaign, Donald Trump, as well as leading Texas Republicans, portrayed the large numbers of undocumented workers in Texas as a burden upon the state's social services. Moreover, fears of Islamic terrorists and accompanying Mexicans and other Latin Americans seeking work in the United States have led to calls for building walls and fences that will make illegal immigration a thing of the past. Conceding that immigration is a national issue, numerous Texas politicians have called for stricter policing of the border by state authorities. It is hard to imagine a new stricter border policy not having negative effects on the trade that has followed from NAFTA and expanding global trade. NAFTA was replaced by a new trade agreement among the United States, Mexico, and Canada, the USMCA, in the fall of 2018. Among the changes demanded by the Trump administration were provisions to protect American workers in the car industry from low wages, increased intellectual property protections, and an opening up of the Canadian milk market. Initial fears that free trade among the three nations might be a thing of the past were set aside as they agreed that increased trade under the proper conditions benefited all parties and that tariffs served no one. Since Texas' annexation by the United States, its economic development has been closely tied to the establishment of military bases. As population pressures pushed westward, a series of federal forts were built to protect Texans from Native Americans, who were perceived to be alien threats to the expanding Anglo-American culture. Seizing federal forts for the Confederacy was one of the first and most important acts for the Texas government following secession. And Texas provided a major military training center during both world wars. Strong leadership in Congress from Texas politicians such as Sam Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson during the New Deal and the post-World War II years brought much-needed jobs and money into the state through the building of one military installation after another. It's hard to overestimate the importance of these military bases to local communities. For example, Fort Bliss, which opened in 1849, is today the U.S. Army's second largest base in size, covering over 1.1 million acres in Texas and New Mexico. In partnership with the city of El Paso, Fort Bliss created the world's largest inland desalination plant, providing fresh water to the base and city. Fort Hood is today the Army's largest active-duty armored post. Taking up more than 217,000 acres, Fort Hood has been responsible for deploying and redeploying over 852,000 soldiers since 2003. Fort Hood is the home to over 60,000 military and civilian personnel, making it the largest single-site employer in the state. And according to a study conducted by the Texas Comptroller's Office, the base generated $21 billion for the state's economy. Today, military installations continue to be important in the economic well-being of certain parts of the state. In 2015, over 163 active duty, reserve, and civilian personnel employed by the U.S. military were living in Texas. The military, along with many businesses that provide consumer services to its members, is big business in Texas. Therefore, an expanding military stimulates economic growth and employment in Texas. A contracting military does not. December 2007, the nation entered what some have called the Great Recession, a time of deep, prolonged economic problems that drew analogies to the Great Depression of the 1930s. A speculative bubble in the housing market fueled by cheap credit and poor business practices culminated in a credit crisis that brought some of America's largest banks and investment houses to their knees. Only the massive intrusion of the Federal Reserve System into credit markets in the fall of 2008 prevented the banking system from melting down. 
The Federal Reserve reported that between November 2007 and March 2009, 86% of American industries cut back production. During this time, the GMP, gross national product, which is the total amount of all goods and services produced in the United States, dropped 1.7%, and household net worth fell $11 trillion, or 18%. Texas was one of the last states to enter the Great Recession and one of the first to exit. Prior to the recession, Texas employment had peaked at 10.6 million in August 2008. From late 2008 to, through 2009, 427,600 jobs were lost, but by November 2011, employment had recovered to pre-recession levels. By April 2014, another 829,000 jobs had been added to the Texas economy. The story at the national level was not so rosy. By the summer of 2014, job numbers were only beginning to approach pre-Great Recession levels. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate in Texas rose to 8.2% and hovered there throughout most of 2010. It began following an falling in early 2011 and continued to fall for the next two years, dropping from 6.4% in March 2013 to 4% to in mid-2018. Many Texas politicians sought to take credit for the state's performance during and after the Great Recession, which some refer to as the Texas economic miracle. Comparisons were made with big government, high-tax states like California that suffered severely. Low taxes and low public services, pro-business government, and entrepreneurial spirit all were given credit. But the factors that may have helped Texas get by relatively unscathed were likely more economic than political. The housing market declined much less severely in Texas than in the rest of the nation. Prior to the Great Recession, Texas had not experienced the surge in real estate values found in other states like California, Nevada, Florida, and Arizona. While foreclosure rates throughout the country increased sixfold between 2005 and 2009, in Texas they rose only marginally. Texas' banking industry also appeared to have weathered the storm better than its counterparts in other states. Article 16 of the Texas Constitution, as amended in 1997, forbids consumers from using home equity loans for credit that exceeds 80% of the mortgage, and this restriction probably provided a cushion against the credit crunch. Two other important factors that may have helped Texas escape the worst of the Great Recession uh, we discussed before, which were an increasingly diversified economy, economy lubricated by international trade and a resurgent oil and gas industry. Following the special session of the state legislature in 2017, some pundits began to question the rhetoric lying behind the Texas economic miracle. Economic growth in Texas no longer appeared to be outperforming that of other states as the malaise of the Great Recession faded into the past. In addition, an aggressive conservative social agenda focused on such issues as abortion, transgender bathrooms, and private vouchers in school threatened to divide the pro-business consensus in the state. During the contentious debate over transgender bathrooms during the summer of 2017, major corporate leaders cautioned political leaders like Speaker Joe Strauss to tone down the social agenda rhetoric or risk losing new businesses coming to the state. Alright, now we're going to look at the people of Texas. So the population of Texas has grown rapidly since 1850 when it stood at a little more than 210,000 people, more than one quarter of whom were African-American slaves. According to the 1900 U.S. Census, there were only 470 American Indians still residing in Texas. The others have been, been driven out during the Indian Wars. Interestingly, today Texas is the home to over 65,000 American Indians, although there are three recognized reservations most live in urban areas, including over 20,000 in Dallas-Fort Worth. 
Texas in 1850 was an overwhelmingly rural state. Only 4% of the population lived in urban areas. By 1900, the population had increased to more than 3 million, with 83% living in rural areas. The 1980s began as boom years for population growth, with increases running between 2.9% and 1.6% per year from 1980 through 1986. With the collapse of oil prices, however, population growth slowed significantly between 1987 and 1989 to less than 1%. Finally, with the recovering economy, population growth surged in the 1990s and has continued into the 21st century. Three factors account for the population growth in Texas. Natural increase as a result of the difference between births and deaths, international immigration, particularly from Mexico, and domestic immigration from other states. The make of the Makeup of the growth in the population shifted in significant ways in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. In 1991, almost two-thirds of population growth was accounted for by natural increase. A little more than 20% was a result of international immigration, while less than 14% resulted from domestic immigration. By 2017, natural increase accounted for only a little over half the growth, while international immigration accounted for about 17% and domestic immigration for about 30%. In the early decades of the 21st century, Texas was being redefined not by native-born Texans, but by outsiders coming to benefit from and contribute to the state's diversified economy. In 2017, it was estimated that 400,000 new residents were added to the state, bringing the total population to 28.3 million people. The majority of this increase came from a natural increase. <clears throat> So for most of the 19th and 20th century, the largest ethnic group was non-Hispanic whites, also referred to as whites or Anglos. These whites comprise a wide range of European ethnic groups, including English, Germans, Scots, Irish, Czechs, and European Jews. The first wave of whites came to Texas before the break with Mexico. Encouraged by impresarios such as Moses Austin and his son Stephen F. Austin, who were authorized by the Spanish and later the Mexican leaders to bring people to Texas, these newcomers sought inexpensive land. <clears throat> but they brought along a new set of individualistic attitudes and values about democratic government that paved the way for the Texas Revolution. Following the revolution, a new surge of white immigrants came from the Deep South. Like their predecessors, they sought cheap land, but they brought with them new cultural baggage slavery. By the time of the American Civil War, this group had come to dominate the political culture of the state. Though most, although most Texas farmers did not own slaves themselves, the vast majority supported the institution as well as secession from the Union. Defeat in the Civil War shattered temporarily the dominance of the traditional white power structure in the state. By the end of Reconstruction, however, it had reasserted itself, establishing the three patterns that define Texas politics for the next hundred years. The one-party democratic state, provincialism, and business dominance. Whites continued to dominate and define Texas political culture throughout much of the 20th century, but by the end of that century, much had changed. As a percentage of the total white population, or as a percentage of the total, white population peaked of 74% in 1950. This percentage began to fall, reaching 42% in 2017, and will likely continue to fall. Furthermore, numbers alone do not tell the whole story. Whites living in Texas in the early 21st century were not cut from the same cloth as those who had preceded them. A new wave of white immigration to Tex into Texas over the past 40 years has redefined the political culture of white Texans. No longer can one assume that a white Texan lives on a farm, holds culturally conservative values, and is firmly tied to the Democratic Party. On the contrary, he or she may not have been born in Texas and furthermore may be an urbanite with progressive values or a suburbanite who votes Republican.
the use of Hispanic and Latino can be confusing. So these terms are often used interchangeably to refer to people of Spanish descent or people from Latin America. In asking about ethnic identity and reporting the results, the U.S. Census generally uses the term Hispanic in its database, but we're going to generally use the term Latino. So most Latinos in Texas are of Mexican descent. Prior to independence from Spain, this group included people born of Iberian Spanish parents as well as mestizos, people of mixed Spanish and Native American ancestry. In the early 20th century, approximately 50,000 people of Mexican descent were living in Texas, although their number fluctuated considerably over the next over the years. By 1850, it was estimated that 14,000 Texans were of Mexican origin. Over the next 75 years, Texas became a refuge from the political and economic instability that troubled Mexico from the late 1850s to the 1920s. Subsequently, periodic attempts to curtail the growth of the Mexican-American population in Texas it grew from an estimated 700,000 in 1930 to 140 or 1,400,000 in 1960 and 5.1 million in 2000. <clears throat> Immigration from other Latin American countries intensified as well. Until 1900, Latinos were concentrated in South Texas, constituting a majority along the border with Mexico and in certain border counties of West Texas. During the first few decades of the 20th century, many migrated to Northwest Texas and the Panhandle to work as laborers in the newly emergent cotton economy. Labor segregation limited the opportunities available to them before World War II. After the war, however, many Latinos uh, left agricultural work and took jobs in the rapidly growing urban areas of Texas. By the end of the century, Latinos constituted majorities in the cities of San Antonio and El Paso and sizable minorities in Houston, Dallas, Austin, and Fort Worth. The political status of Latinos in Texas has changed considerably over the past hundred years. Well into the 20th century, their ability to vote, particularly among the lower economic classes, was tightly controlled or actively discouraged by the white primary and the poll tax. Only after World War II were Latino populations able to escape some of the strictures that had been imposed on them by the dominant white political culture. <clears throat> A more tolerant atmosphere in urban areas enabled some to assume positions of importance in local political communities. In 1956, Henry B. Gonzalez became the first Mexican-American elected to the Texas Senate since the 19th century. In the mid-1960s, a political movement emerged in the La Raza Unida Party, which confronted many of the discriminatory practice that, practices that isolated Texas Latinos from the political and economic mainstream. By the 1980s, Latino political leaders were playing a growing role in state politics, and Latino voters were courted heavily by both political parties. People of African descent were among the earliest explorers of Texas. Most African Americans, however, entered Texas as slaves brought by whites from the upper and lower south. At first, anti-slavery attitudes among Spanish and Mexican authorities kept the slave population down. However, independence from Mexico lifted the restrictions on slavery, creating an incentive for Southerners to expand the system westward. The number of slaves in Texas rose from 5,000 in 1845 to 58,000 in 1850. By the Civil War, over 182,000 slaves lived in Texas, approximately one-third of the state's entire population. Emancipation for African Americans living in Texas came on June 19, 1865, a day now celebrated as Juneteenth Day. In 
Emancipation did not bring anything approaching equality. Between 1865 and 1868, both the state legislature and various cities passed a series of so-called black coats that restricted the rights of former slaves. But federal military occupation of the state and congressional reconstruction of its government opened new opportunities for former slaves, who supported the radical wing of the Republican Party. Ten African-American delegates helped write the Texas Constitution of 1869, and 43 served in the state legislature between 1868 and 1900. The end of Reconstruction and the return to power of the Democratic Party in the mid-1870s, however, reversed much of the post-war progress made by black Texans. In 1900, over 100,000 African-Americans voted in Texas elections. By 1903, the number had fallen to under 5,000, largely because of the imposition of the poll tax in 1902 and the passage of an early version of the white primary law in 1903. In 1923, the legislature explicitly banned back blacks from voting in the Democratic primary. Segregation of the races became a guiding principle of public policy, backed by the police power of the state and reinforced by lynching and race riots against African Americans. Between 1885 and 1942, 339 African Americans were lynched in Texas, with most lynchings taking place in the eastern portion of the state. For all intents and purposes, African Americans have become second-class citizens, disenfranchised by the political system and marginalized by the political culture. In the 1940s and 1950s, federal court decisions offered some hope of relief to African Americans living in Texas. The U.S. Supreme Court decision in Smith v. Allwright, 1944, outlawed the white primary. Sweat v. Painter, 1950, guaranteed African Americans admission to graduate and professional schools at state colleges and universities. Finally, Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, outlawed the segregation of public schools. Political progress was much slower. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 helped to open the political system in Texas to African Americans, and in 1966, a small number of African American candidates began to win political office in the state. In 1972, Barbara Jordan became the first African American woman from Texas to be elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. The state's African American population remains concentrated in East Texas, where the plantation and sharecropping systems were dominant during the 19th century. Large numbers of African Americans have also migrated to Houston and Dallas, where they form sizable minorities in both central city and suburban areas. African American political leaders have come to play major roles in these areas as members of Congress, the state legislature, and city councils, as well as mayors of Houston and Dallas beginning in the late 1990s. Although considerably smaller than the groups already discussed, the Asian population has grown in Texas in recent years. It includes individuals from many countries, but particularly India, Vietnam, China, Pakistan, Korea, and Japan. In 2017, the U.S. Census Bureau estimated that over 1 million Asian Americans resided in Texas, or about 5% of the state's population. Asian Americans tend to be concentrated in certain cities and their suburbs, particularly in West Houston and Fort Bend County, the western and northern suburbs of Dallas, Arlington, and Austin, and its suburbs. Sizable pockets of Asian Americans also live along the Gulf Coast. When compared with the rest of the nation, the population of Texas is younger. In 2017, 26% of the population was estimated to be under 18 years old, compared with 22.6% nationally. In addition, only 12.3% of Texans were 65 or older, compared with 15.6% nationally. Its relatively young population represents with a variety, represents Texas or presents Texas with a variety of both problems and opportunities as we're going to talk about later.
So younger populations tend to be poorer as income and poverty statistics wear out. Uh, even taking into account the Great Recession, the late 20th and early 21st centuries were a period of rapid economic growth in Texas. Although the state continued to lag slightly behind the nation as a whole, its per capita income rose from 17366 in 1990 to 46942 in 2017. This was 93% of the national average per capita personal per capita personal income of 50,393, ranking Texas at 25 among the 50 states. The percentage of the population in Texas with incomes below the poverty level as defined by the federal government fell from 15.7% to 14.9% between 1990 and 2004 and rose to 17.2% in 2014. During the same period, the national poverty rate fell from 13.5% to 11.7% and rose to 14.8% in 2014. Urbanization. So this is the process by which people move from rural to, sub to urban areas. Suburbanization is the process by which people move out of central city areas to surrounding suburban areas. Much of Texas history is linked to ongoing urbanization. By the 21st century, this process was largely complete, as 85% of the population now reside in urban areas. Suburbanization, however, continues as city populations spill over into surrounding suburban areas. Most Texas cities are the result of American settlement and culture. The Spanish influence on urban life in Texas grew out of efforts to extend territorial control northward out of Mexico through a series of presidios, garrisons, missions, churches, and pueblos, or towns. The physical organization and planning of the towns reflected this imperial mission. For example, the largest Spanish settlement was San Antonio. Initially established as a supply depot to missions in East Texas, it later expanded as missions were established to convert local Native Americans to Roman Catholic Christianity and farms were cultivated to feed the local population. By the early 19th century, San Antonio's population had reached 2,500. Other smaller settlements were located in East Texas along the border with French and later American territory. White American influence began with the arrival in 1820 in San Antonio of Moses Austin, soon followed by his son Stephen F. Austin. The Spanish offered the Austins and other impresarios grants of land to encourage the inflow of Americans into underpopulated regions of Texas. Small towns emerged as administrative units for impresario grants. They were there were considerably more economic and personal freedom for whites and dynamism in American urban areas than in Spanish ones. Americans brought with them a host of new cultural artifacts that would transform urban life in Texas, including a new language, slavery, Protestant, Protestantism, and a commitment to free enterprise and democracy. The courthouse became a focal point of many American towns, often occupying a central location surrounded by shops. Urbanization has transformed Texas political life. From Reconstruction through the first half of the 20th century, Texas politics grew out of the state's rural-based economy centered on cotton, cattle, oil, and natural gas. The expansion of Texas urban life began along the Gulf Coast and gradually moved west, particularly along the rivers. New technologies played a key role in transforming the state's urban landscape. Dredging technology stimulated the growth of port cities such as Houston, Galveston, Corpus Christi, and Brownsville, and railroad construction in the second half of the 19th century opened up new lands to regional and national markets as well as economic development. 
So just to put in perspective, uh, in 1880, there were only 11 towns of 4,000 or more people in all of Texas. With the rapid expansion of railroads in the 1880s and 90s, the number rose to 36 by 1900. By 1910, when the railroad network of 13,110 miles was completed, Texas had 49, 49 towns with a population of 4,000 or more. By 1925, cities, Dallas, El Paso, Fort Worth, Houston, and San Antonio have populations of more than 50,000, and these population patterns would be reinforced by later technological breakthroughs in cars and air travel. So, we're going to look at four of the most important uh, metropolitan areas in Texas now. First one we're going to look at is Houston. So, located in Harris County, it is the largest city in Texas and with a population of 2.3 million, it is the fourth largest in the United States behind New York, LA, and Chicago. Its metropolitan area encompasses eight counties with an estimated population of 6.1 million in 2011. So, the city originated in 1836 out of the entrepreneurial dreams of two brothers, Augustus Chapman Allen and John Kirby Allen, who sought to create a great interior commercial emporium of Texas. It was named after Sam Houston, the leader of Texas Army during its War of Independence from Mexico. Because its early settlers came from the South, bringing with them the institution of slavery, segregation was built into the social structure from the outset. For the first half of the 20th century, African Americans were either denied or given limited access to a variety of public services such as parks, schools, buses, restrooms, and restaurants. In the late 19th century, Houston's economic well-being depended on cotton and commerce. Railroads played an integral role in placing the city at the hub of the Texas economy, and the opening of the Houston Ship Channel further enhanced its position by helping to turn it into the second or third, depending on whose ranking gets used, deep water port in the United States. But it was oil that fundamentally transformed the Houston area in the 20th century. Oil refineries opened along the ship channel and a petrochemical industry emerged, making Houston one of the leading energy centers in the world. Houston continues to rank first in the nation in the manufacture of petroleum equipment. By 1930, Houston had become the largest city in Texas with a population of around 292,000 people. The population continued to expand in the next half century, assisted by a liberal state annexation policy that enabled the city to incorporate into itself many of the outlying suburban areas. Although the oil bust in the mid-1980s slowed the city's growth, that growth continued in the early 21st century. So, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Now, the Metroplex is an economic region encompassing the cities of Dallas and Fort Worth as well as a number of the suburban cities, including Arlington, Mesquite, Garland, Richardson, Irving, Plano, McKinney, Carrollton, Grand Prairie, Frisco, and Denton. The major counties in the area are Dallas, Tarrant, and Collin. The Metroplex is joined together by a number of interlocking highways running north-south and east-west and by a major international airport strategically located in the national air system. Dallas was founded as a trading post in 1841, near where two roads were built by the Republic. By the 1850s, it had become a retail center servicing surrounding rural areas with a population that reached 3,000 by 1870. The coming of the Houston and Texas Central Railroad in 1871 and the Texas and Pacific Railroad in 1873 made Dallas the first rail crossroads in Texas and transformed forever its place in the state's economy.
Markets now beckoned east and north, encouraging entrepreneurs and merchants to set up shop. As cotton became a major cash crop, the city's population more than tripled by 1880 to more than 10,000 people. So, Dallas became a major center for petroleum financing with the discovery of oil in te East Texas in 1930. By the end of World War II, the economy had diversified, making Dallas a minor manufacturing center in the nation. In the 1950s and 60s, techno technology companies such as Ling Timkovat, LTV, and Texas Instruments were added to the industrial mix, transforming Dallas into the third largest technology center in the nation. The high-tech boom of the 1990s was built from corporate infrastructure laid down in the 1950s and 60s. Dallas grew from 844,401 people in 1970 to 1,341,075 in 2017. So, Fort Worth and Dallas, even though they are uh, joined in a lot of ways economically, they're very, very different. So, Dallas looks to the east and embodies more corporate, white-collar business structure. Fort Worth instead looks to the west. Fort Worth originated as an army post in 1849, but by 1853, the military had abandoned it as new forts were built in the west. Although settlers replaced the soldiers, population growth was slow during the early 1870s. The spark that set off the town's prosperity was the rise of the cattle industry. So because Fort Worth was a convenient place for cowboys to rest on their cattle drives from southern Texas to Kansas, cattle buyers established headquarters in the city. By 1900, Fort Worth was served by eight railroad companies, most of the, them transporting cattle and related products to national markets. The two world wars encouraged further economic development in Fort Worth. Over 100,000 troops were trained at Camp Bowie during World War I. World War II brought an important Air Force base and along with it, the aviation industry. The consolidated Volte Aircraft Corporation, which was later bought by General Dynamics, became the largest manufacturer in the city. Between 1900 and 1950, Fort Worth's population grew from 26,668 to 277,047. By 2017, the population was 874,168. San Antonio. So San Antonio in Bejar County grew out of the Spanish Presidio of San Antonio de Bejar, which was founded in 1718. In 1773, it became the capital of Spanish Texas with a population of around 2,100. Because of the threats posed by Native Americans and Mexicans after the Texas Revolution, this figure had declined to about 800 by 1846. You know, so um, on Texas entry into the Union, the population took off, reaching 3,488 in 1850, and so on. So immigrant groups from Germany added distinctive cultural and language styles to a rapidly expanding San Antonio. By the Civil War, San Antonio was the largest city in Texas. Following the war, San Antonio continued to grow rapidly, stimulated by the building of the San Antonio Railroad in 1877. By 1880, the population was more than 200,000, mostly white Americans from southern states. 
today San Antonio is Texas largest city, second largest city, third if you consider Dallas and Fort Worth together. The population of the city was estimated to be over a million in 2017. It had about a population of 2 million in 2014. So unlike Houston or Dallas, San Antonio lacks high paying manufacturing jobs and average metropolitan income is lower than in Houston and Dallas. The economy rests on four legs, national military bases, educational institutions, tourism, and a large medical research complex. So Austin, Austin in Central Texas and Travis County on the eastern edge of the hill country. Austin is, has an estimated population of 950,000 in 2017. Oh, yeah. Demographically, Austin is 48% white, 35% Latino, 7% black, and 7% Asian. Per capita income is 39,103, 40% higher than the state average. Median household income is $66,697, 20% higher than the state amount. Almost half of adults living in Austin have a bachelor's degree or higher. Along with Round Rock and San Marcos, Austin is part of the 31st largest metropolitan area in the country and fourth largest in the state behind Dallas, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, and San Antonio with a population of over 2 million. Austin's economy rests on three solid foundations. First, as the state capital, Austin is the hub of governmental business in the state. Although the legislature only meets for 140 days every two years and for special sessions when they are called, state agencies are a year-round activity as are the lobbying activities of special interests. Second, Austin is the location of the University of Texas at Austin, the flagship institution of the University of Texas system. Founded in 1883, UT Austin is today the home to more than 40,000 undergraduates, 11,000 graduate students, and 3,000 faculty members. Third, Austin has a thriving high-tech industry. Grown from seeds planted by governmental and university activity, Austin's computer and electronics business are the core of one of the most vibrant regional economies in the country. Through them, the city continues to attract people and businesses at a remarkable pace. The origins of Austin go back to the early years of the Republic. Texas capital moved five times in 1836 before Sam Houston settled on the city of Houston in 1837. However, Mirabeau Lamar, Texas' second president, wanted a site on the western frontier of the state, hoping that this new state capital would promote westward expansion. The Lamar administration settled on a site on the Colorado River near the hamlet of Waterloo. The Texas Congress convened in this location in November 1839 and Austin was incorporated by the Congress on December 27th of the same year. The population stood at 856 including 145 slaves and various foreign diplomatic representatives. All was not well, right? So Sam Houston, who returned to the president's office following Lamar, felt that Austin was not a safe place for the National Archives because of tensions with Mexico. He moved the capital back to Houston and then to Washington on the Brazos until 1845. A fight broke out with Austin residents as Governor Houston tried to have the archives moved out of Austin, the so-called Archives War. Chronic political instability and uncertainty caused the population of Austin 
to fall to below 200 by 1845. Annexation by the United States in 1845, however, turned Austin's fortunes around, and on February 19, 1846, the day Texas transitioned from nationhood to statehood, Austin became the permanent capital of the state. So, having settled its status as the government hub in the state, Austin began to gradually grow. The emergence of the Houston and Texas Central Railroad in 1871 linked Austin to the eastern part of the state and turned it into a trading center in Central Texas. By 1880, the city's population had grown significantly. And two events in the 1880s proved to be important benchmarks for Austin's future. First, Austin was selected in 1881 to be the site of the main university for the state. Buildings were constructed in 1882, and the University of Texas opened on September 15, 1883. Although the University of Texas remained small for many years, the discovery of oil on university lands in West Texas in 1923 led to a financial windfall in the university's endowment, which fueled building construction in the city for decades. Second, in 1888, a new capital was built in the center of Austin. Along with the university, the capital would be the axis around which urban life in Austin would revolve. Compared to Dallas-Fort Worth and Houston, Austin's economic base was narrow for the early decades of the 20th century. Except for the benefits gleaned from the university's endowment, Austin missed out on much of the economic development flowing from the rise of oil and gas production. So, driving this increase was a rapidly diversifying economy led by the high-tech sector. IBM located Austin in 1969 and was soon followed by Texas Instruments 19, later that year and Motorola in 1967. So other high-tech firms followed in the 1980s including Dell Computers and Sematech. By the 1990s there were estimated to be 400 high technology businesses located in Austin. So that's all I have on the political culture of Texas. I hope you found it interesting and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.